0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, my name is Adam. I serve as one of the elders here at Missio, and uh, it's a joy to be with you and to open God's word together. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 12 this morning as we look together. Behold the life and death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and our, our prayer is that as we do that, that we would grow in our affections for him and that we would walk in obedience. So would you turn with me to Mark chapter 12, if you have a Bible? If not, it'll be up on the screen, or you can grab one in the pew in front of you. Mark chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 18 through 27. Mark chapter 12, 18 through 27. This is the word of the Lord. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that you are a God who reveals yourself to your people, that we might know you, that we might behold you, that we might grow in love for you and obedience. Lord, we pray that as we look to your word this morning, that your spirit would, would teach us that it would be your words and not mine that guide us, that correct us, that draw us closer to you. We pray that you would be honored in our time together this morning. Our hope and prayer is that you would be glorified in all that we say, and all that we sing, and all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Amen. So what will the future hold? What happens after we die? And can you really be sure that that's what's going to happen? Everyone wrestles with those major questions at some point in their life. And every religion attempts to answer the question of what comes next. Everything from reincarnation to appearing in this world in a different form to various ideas about heaven, about an afterlife, about what comes next. And each religion claims not only a different answer to what comes next, but a different way to get there, a different way to obtain what's next. And in this passage that we just read, there's a group of religious leaders who question Jesus about the resurrection, about that very thing, because their belief, as we're told, is they deny it. They deny the resurrection. And so Jesus answers them, and he shows them, as we'll see, that yes, indeed, there is a resurrection, and he uses this opportunity, he uses their question, their trap, to teach us, to teach them that the Christian's assurance of the future life is based on the covenant faithfulness of God. You see, every other religion is about what you do or don't do to satisfy some set of requirements. And that's our default position. Just this past week, Steve and I went for a walk through this neighborhood and praying for our neighbors. And we come across an older gentleman, we'll just call him Jim. And great conversation with Jim. Jim's had a pretty rough past, but now he's doing all right. Friendly guy, very nice guy. And as we begin to talk with him and ask how we can pray for him and begin to point that conversation towards Christ, Jim tells us that you know, he, he's pretty sure that when he dies, he'll go to heaven. And we ask him why. It's, well, the thing he's most proud of in life is his relationship with his girlfriend, that he's cared for his girlfriend who is disabled, who can't get around. And based on that, he's, he's pretty sure that he'll be in heaven someday. And not to take anything away, from the way that Jim has served this woman who can't get around, this woman who's disabled, it's a very noble thing to do. But even in our noblest act, even in his the noblest act he could think of, the best he could say is, I'm pretty sure that because of that, I'll be in heaven someday. And so our desire, my desire is that as we look at this passage together, Jim would see, we would see that our future hope is anchored, not to what we've done or haven't done, but anchored to the faithfulness of God. Last week, Jordan taught on a previous passage where another, a different group of religious leaders, they attempt to trap Jesus by asking him a question about taxes. And of course, Jesus avoids their trap, and in his response, he communicates the important truth that we belong to God, that we're made in his image, and we serve his purposes And in today's passage, in this passage, we've got a different group of religious leaders and another attempt to trap Jesus. So before we get into the specifics, we zoom out a little bit just to realize where we are in the story. We see that we're in the midst of this series of conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders, that there's four questions right in a row consecutively in the Gospel of Mark here. We're on the third one, the third of four interactions between Jesus and these religious leaders. Where they're attempting to trap him, they question his authority. They question him about these taxes. They question him about the resurrection. And what we see over and over again is Jesus, he's not caught off guard. Jesus isn't in trouble here. He's not at, at, at any risk. Right? Though they seem to be presenting a great threat to him, Jesus, if we remember, he told his disciples that this is exactly what would happen. He told them. First, beginning in Mark chapter 8, that he, he began to teach them, it says, that the Son of Man, that Jesus, that he would suffer many things and be rejected by who? By the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And then he would be killed and after three days rise again. So we men- we've mentioned that often. I mentioned it again just so we know where we are on the map here. When it comes to his life, death, and resurrection, as Jesus is confronted by these religious leaders, it's nothing that he wasn't aware of. And it's nothing that was outside of his plan to be our suffering servant and conquering king. So previously, we saw in the last, last week it was the Pharisees and the Herodians were the names of these religious leaders, the groups that they belong to. And they try to trap Jesus with a political question. Now it's this group called the Sadducees, we see in verse 18. And they're trying to trap Jesus with a the theological question. Again, Mark is emphasizing the point that it's all kinds of Jewish religious leaders that are attempting to trap him, that are opposing him, that are rejecting him, just as he said. So who is this group, the Sadducees? Well, we know that this group is the highest class of the religious leaders. They're the priestly aristocracy If you will, they're the more conservative of the religious leaders. The Sadducees were the ones who insisted on a literal interpretation of the scripture. They often fought against the Pharisees who brought in tradition and other laws, right? And the Sadducees resisted that for a literal interpretation of the law. We're told here that they say there's no resurrection. So this group doesn't believe in that. They see no evidence for it in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the law, which they believe were most authoritative. And if we were to go on through the New Testament, what we see is that these Sadducees, not only do they oppose Jesus, but they aggressively opposed the early church and some of the disciples, some of the apostles. It tells us in Acts 4 that as Peter and John were preaching, as they're speaking to the people, it says that the priests and the Sadducees came up to them, that they were greatly annoyed Because they were teaching about the resurrection and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so what did they do? They arrested Peter and John, put them in custody until the next day. So that's the group. That's these Sadducees. And they come to Jesus. Verse 18. They ask him a question. But first, right, they try to trap Jesus. They set up their question using Scripture, They say, teacher, Moses wrote for us, verse 19, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So they say, Moses said, right, there's a woman married to a man, the man dies. So Moses said that the brother should come along if that first man didn't have any kids, marry that woman so that the family name could be carried on. And they're referencing Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses five and six, and this is what it says. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So what Moses had commanded, Deuteronomy chapter 5 is what they're referencing. There's a woman, she marries a man. They don't have any kids. The man dies. So the brother's obligation is to marry sister-in-law. And if they have a child, then that child takes not the brother's name, not the second husband's name, but that child takes the first husband's name. So that's what they're referencing when they say in verse 19, Moses told us this. So then verse 20, they get, here's the trap. Here's the hypothetical situation. They say, right, let's pretend. So there were seven brothers. Right? Now, the first brother, he takes a wife. Brother number one takes a wife. Brother number one dies. So, brother number two comes along. Brother number one didn't have any kids, so brother number two comes along. They don't have any kids, so brother number two ends up dying without any kids. Brother number three comes along. They don't have any kids either before brother number three. So, so on and so forth until you get to brother number seven. Woman doesn't have any children with any of these brothers. They all die, and so that's the situation. They say, last of all, the woman dies. So, it's obvious they've thought this through. They've probably used this argument before. And their reasoning is that Moses, there's no way Moses would allow this woman to have seven husbands after she died, right? According to Jesus, according to the resurrection, they all rise again. There's no way Moses is going to say, you've got seven husbands And so clearly there's no possibility in their minds for the resurrection or Moses would never have given such a command. So otherwise you end up with seven brothers fighting over one woman. None of them have any children, so nobody can say, well, that's my kid, so she's my wife. And so it's an absurd situation, right? Absolutely absurd. And that's kind of the point that they're making, that they're trying to show the absurdity of the resurrection. And the, the result that they're hoping for, of course, is that Jesus is going to be proven wrong about the resurrection, which would call into question his authority in the eyes of all the people and it would ruin his reputation. Right? They're jealous of Jesus and so that's their aim in this trap is to ruin his reputation so no one else would listen to anything he has to say. And so, verse 24, Jesus responds. And his response if we look at the beginning and the end, right, is bookended with, let me tell you why you're wrong, and you are quite wrong, right? So before we get to his specific response, let's consider again, right, his, remember, this is in the context of this broader conflict with the religious leaders. We're on the third here of four confrontations, and Yet again, Jesus has no problem. He's not thrown by their attack. He's not worried. He doesn't struggle to come up with an answer. You are, let me tell you why you're wrong. You are quite wrong. What it shows us as we think about the broader application for where we are in Mark's gospel is Jesus has no trouble holding up under their unjust, undeserved attacks. We see him as this suffering Servant, and he suffers quite well. Now, I don't know that I could say the same. I mean, if after the service one of you were to come up to me and pick apart everything I said this morning and critique and criticize this message, I'd like to think I would handle it well, and maybe in the moment I would smile at you and say thank you. But chances are tonight, I'm playing over that conversation in my mind. Probably tomorrow, probably Tuesday, maybe by Wednesday, I've moved on right? But it's going to eat away at me. I remember preaching one time, not here, but another congregation. And as I'm preaching, you know, you're kind of making eye contact. And I, I happen to connect with one gentleman who's sitting halfway back, like where John Ferrugio is. And the guy's shaking his head. Like this. And so right away, like, it's hard to keep going. You got to keep going, but you're kind of paralyzed with fear. Like, oh no, What? What did I say? And you know, you're trying to move on in your notes, but look back and you're playing over everything in your head, going, How did I offend this guy? You know, what if somebody said something about you that wasn't true? Right? And what if that rumor began to spread? Worse yet, what if somebody in authority, what if what if a boss, an employer, a supervisor right, was jealous of your success of your popularity with the other employees and began to try to spread a rumor to take you out because they were jealous of all that you were doing. At some point, right, all of us would fold. All of us would break, but not Jesus. And that's what's going on here in these series of questions. He holds up just fine under these undeserved attacks because he's sovereign over them as conquering king, he said, as we mentioned, he said that they would do this very thing. He said that he would be rejected by these very religious leaders, and he was. It's all part of his plan to save. And it shows us that he's not anything like these religious leaders. In fact, it shows us that you couldn't find any leader like him. These conflicts reveal his greatness, as a suffering servant, as we see what he endured, in fact, what he was completely sovereign over. But he uses each one of these to illuminate truth, some aspect of the nature and character of God. So what do we learn from this specific encounter? Well, Jesus doesn't just dispute their error, though he absolutely proves them wrong. First, what he does is he exposes the, root of, the very root of their problem. He tells them that there are two underlying issues which show their ignorance. And if you look at verse 24, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Number one, he says, the root of their problem, the root of their ignorance, the root of their error, number one, he says, is you don't know the scriptures. Now that's a shocking critique for this particular group of leaders. They had plenty of knowledge of the scriptures. They took pride in their knowledge of the scriptures. After all, these were the conservatives of the religious leaders who were fighting for a literal interpretation of the scriptures and fought against any laws or traditions that couldn't be backed up by the scriptures. So this is extremely insulting for these Sadducees. Jesus is attacking what they perceive to be their greatest strength. And he's exposing it as the thing which actually kept them from knowing God. That they took pride in the amount of knowledge that they had of the scriptures. We see that as they approach him, right? Teacher Moses said. Right? They try to use the scriptures to attack Jesus. and We know that God gave to us his word as a means to reveal himself so that we would know him. And yet they're using the scriptures as a means, not for relationship with God, but as a means to prove their own righteousness to God. As a means of proving their own value and worth to other people, to themselves. And so when he says you don't know the scriptures, that word no, it means to to see in such a way that we grasp and understand. They don't know. They've got head knowledge, but spiritually they're blind. They don't understand what the scriptures truly teach. And he says they don't you also don't know the power of of God. They don't know the power of God to make a new world, to usher in the new heavens and new earth. They don't know the power of God to transform these broken bodies, right? to overcome sin and death and sickness and give us new life. They don't know that power. As Paul writes in Philippians 3 that, that these bodies, our bodies, will be transformed, they will be resurrected. How? Paul says it's by the power of Jesus. He writes in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. They don't understand the power of God. They don't see that the resurrection that Jesus is talking about is, it's not simply a continuation of life as they know it, but it's a life that's transformed and a life that's made new by the power of God. Therefore, they don't understand the God of the Bible, and they don't understand his power. These leaders are clinging instead to their own knowledge. They're clinging tightly to their religion their man-made, man-centered religion. They're clinging to the power that comes from their own accomplishments and from the knowledge that they've gained. That's what they're clinging to. And Jesus points them instead through the scriptures to what God has done. Right? He shows them Moses isn't ultimate. The God of Moses is ultimate. Right? They said, teacher, Moses wrote... Well, he goes on to say, God said to Moses, right? They said, teacher, Moses wrote this. Is that now what we do when it comes, right, to the afterlife, when it comes to heaven, when it comes to our future? You know, Grandma once told me, well, God bless Grandma, but God said, right? But I heard Oprah, no, no. But a pastor once said, no, God said, you know, I just have this sense, for some reason, I just know deep down that there's a place for me when I die. No. It's not about what Moses said. It's not about what we think. It's about what God said. And that's where Jesus points them to the true author of the scriptures. And so we see from his response that really knowing the scriptures, what it's all about, is leading us to know, love, love. And fear God. And that's what they were missing. Our hope as a people, for us as a congregation, is that we would elevate the scriptures, not just to fill us with information, but in order to exalt God that we might know him as he's revealed himself in his word. And so we we begin and end with the scriptures. We try to sing songs that are rooted in the scriptures. We teach from the scriptures as we walk through the books of the Bible, not because we want you to be a people that have more knowledge than anybody else. We don't want to be a church that's just known for information. We tie ourselves to his word and go to his word over and over and over that we might know him, that we might love him, that we might serve him, that we would stand in awe of him. And that's what they were missing. See, I heard somebody suggest once four basic questions as we go to the scriptures that keep us grounded, right? That we would ask as we open God's word, number one, what does it tell us about his identity, about who he is? And then what has God done? What does it reveal about the activity of God? Number three, what does it say then about our identity and who we are as his created beings? And then lastly, how should we respond but see we often flip these around and that's what most or all religions do it begins with our activities it begins with what do we need to do in order to gain a preferable future after we die what do we need to do and then based on what we've done that interprets our or informs our identity so if i'm a good person and if i follow all the rules and if i do all of these things then i am acceptable and worthy and for the most part, good. And if I am those things, then God will respond by acting accordingly. Right? Then he will save. Then he will look favorably. Then he will bless. Then he will make me prosper. Then he will give me eternal life. And God's left in a position of either doling out punishments or rewards based on what we've done. That's what religion does. It flips this whole thing on its head and we start with our activity. But what they were missing is that this all begins with God revealing himself to us. And in that we begin, we see his activities and he shapes who we are and then we respond in obedience to him. See, he not only answers their questions and avoids their traps, but he addresses their condition and their need. Our condition, our need. That they didn't understand the nature of God and his relationship to man as revealed in his word. So then, right, then he does go on and he refutes their view of the resurrection. He says in verse 25, for when, they rise from the, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. He says, okay, that whole argument, that whole hypothetical situation that they sat around for hours coming up with, here's the perfect trap for Jesus. He says, yeah, no, that doesn't even apply to the resurrection because there is no marriage. After this, after the resurrection, he says, you neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels. Right? Not like angels in the sense, right? Some have gotten the idea that after we die, we're gonna become an angel and we'll float around with wings and a halo and you know, your relatives become your, your angel and they're watching over. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you become like angels in this one sense, that angels are not married, nor are they given in marriage. That's what he's explaining here. John Piper says it this way in his book, This Momentary Marriage. There is no human marriage after death. The shadow of covenant keeping between husband and wife gives way to the reality of covenant keeping between Christ and his glorified church. and Nothing is lost. Marriage is intended to provide a picture of the gospel. And what we know is that in the new heaven and the new earth, after Jesus comes back and we're resurrected to be with him, that there's no need for symbols anymore. There's no need for pictures of the gospel. Revelation 21 tells us that God himself will dwell with us. We don't need help understanding, right, through these other means, through marriage, we don't need help understanding what God is like. God himself will dwell with us. He goes on to say, as John's describing in Revelation, the vision that God gives him of the future, that He says, I don't see a temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. He says, the city doesn't need the sun or the moon for the glory of God gives it light and the nations walk by that light. So marriage provides a picture that we don't need anymore in the resurrection. Marriage also serves a purpose of procreation as God commanded Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. This week, we had a great conversation in the carpool, right? Right? One of, the, one of the kids asked, why do we need to get married anyways? Right? And my son, without missing a beat, says, because if no one got married, eventually the world's population would reach zero. <laughs> but okay, that's, that's definitely part of it. That certainly is one aspect of it. But again, there's no, there's no need for that because there's no death. And we're told again in Revelation that there will be so many people worshiping Jesus. Revelation 7 says that there's a great multitude that nobody could count from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people all worshiping together, singing salvation belongs to our God. So there's no need for marriage, there's no need for anybody to have babies because nobody's going to die and there's going to be a whole bunch of us praising Jesus. And there's no need for the companionship of marriage because we'll have perfect fellowship with God and with one another. And so none of that takes away anything from the value of marriage. If anything, it highlights why it's so important in, on this side of eternity. So that's his first point, right? which is sort of a, it's a very valuable sidebar that immediately kind of eliminates their whole situation. But then he says, and as for the dead being raised, right? So let's get on now to the fact of the resurrection. Have you not read in the book of Moses, like, Have these guys not read in the book of Moses? Yes, absolutely. They have read in the book of Moses. But again, they didn't understand. And so Jesus appeals to the very same scriptures that that they do. He knows they've got a high view of Moses. So have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not God of the dead But of the living. So he's making a couple points there that there is, in fact, a resurrection. There is, in fact, life after this physical death. Because these patriarchs, who who they revere, who they have great respect and admiration for, they're not simply dead and gone. They didn't just cease to exist, they're alive and in fellowship with God. God is still their God. And his covenant with them is not nullified by their death. He says, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. That their guarantee of the future that God promised to them was not based on their position as patriarchs, was not based on their accomplishments, it's based on God's covenant faithfulness to them that his relationship over and over again with those men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was one of promise, was one of covenant, was one of establishing future promises for them based upon simply his word, his desire for relationship with his people, his faithfulness to them. And so that guarantee, he's saying, Right? that God would bring them to the promised land was based on his faithfulness. We read in Exodus chapter 6, it says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as, as sojourners. He's saying God related to them through his Promise and he is faithful to keep his promises. His word is true. And what really, that promised land on this earth, what it really was a picture of was God's promise of something so much greater. So Jesus comes along and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. To a group that's lost. Their friend and loved one, Lazarus, he preaches to them saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Right? That promise of resurrection is tied, anchored firmly to Jesus. To what he accomplished in his resurrection and his life. That's what the hope of the future is anchored to. And so Jesus is appealing here to the very nature and character of God. And that's where our future is rooted. So again, he uses this opportunity to show them, to show us that our assurance of future life is based on the covenant faithfulness of God. That death, which we often fear and do anything to avoid, that death only ends our relationship with this world as we know it. And it's a tough one, right? This life here and now is not always easy. But we have hope that's anchored to God's faithfulness. This life is painful. This life is difficult. This life is confusing. This life has betrayal and and hurt and sickness and poverty And suffering, sometimes the result of others, sometimes the result of what we've done. But in it, aren't we glad that our hope for the future is not anchored to you or to me? That in the midst of everything life throws at us, in the midst of all of our struggles, in the midst of all of the pain, aren't we glad that our hope is not anchored to our ability Our knowledge, our good works, is that really the anchor we want to throw down? And yet, that's often what we do. And that's what every other religion offers you. That's what every other belief system offers you. Right? Inshallah, if God wills, if I'm good enough, if I do enough, if I'm kind enough, maybe, maybe, I hope. Is that really where we want to anchor our future? And here, what Jesus is telling us so clearly is our anchor is the character, the faithfulness, the covenant-keeping God, that we can trust the promises of Jesus when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever, whoever doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter how good you are. None of it met ma- whoever believes in me will live and not die. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 describing this life, he says we're in this tent, this temporary dwelling and while we're here, we groan and we're burdened. Because we don't wish to be unclothed but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He says, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God. That is, God gave us the desire. He gave us a desire for eternity. He gave us a desi- We're people who, who are looking for hope and a future. God gave us to that. He said, that same God has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and we know Think about that. We are always confident. Man, I don't know that I'm always confident. I don't know that I'm always sure. And when I'm not, it's because I've turned inward to my own strength, to my own knowledge, or to something other than Christ. But he says we, those of us who are in Christ, are always confident. And if that's not you, if you can't say I'm always confident, the best I can come up with is I hope so, I think maybe, Listen to these words. I'm always confident and sure because God has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come, right? For those who are in Christ. And so my challenge for you this morning, if you haven't trusted in him, is not only take my word, but take the words of Jesus this morning that that's an anchor you want to throw down. That's the only anchor that will hold you. And for the Christian, let's be honest, there's times right, when, for some strange reason, we throw this flimsy little anchor into the storms of life, right, hoping, wishing, thinking that perhaps we can get through this apart from him. And let's turn back to the only true anchor. See, in this passage, we don't, we don't learn a whole lot about the resurrection except that it's the truth. That it's going to happen and that our hope is based on the faithfulness of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the words of Jesus in this passage. We thank you that he exposes our feeble attempts to secure your blessing, to secure our future. And God, may we trust in him as our anchor. We thank you that you are a God who is faithful to keep his promises, that your words are always true, that we can depend upon you and that you've given us your spirit as a seal, as a deposit to guarantee it. And so may we as your people live in this world, broken and fallen and hurting with confidence because of what you have done. God, forgive us for trusting in our own strength or in other means, and may we trust firmly in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.